and then you go for a, a plastic surgery consultation. And then the surgeon start well, not the surgeon, but the practice has all these different names for all these different procedures. And these procedures are explained to you as, well, they're going to enhance this and they're going to enhance that. It's yes, it's very, very seductive. And before you know it, you're you're walking out with, you know, $150,000 facelift. And yet, does the patient really understand everything that they're signing for? And are all these things really necessary for the result that they're looking for? Because managing expectations is so important and so huge. And so the marketing terms can be very confusing. And it's, yeah, it's so, it's very easy to get sucked into doing something, not understanding what you're doing. You're listening to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Clinic, the podcast where the most high-performing owners of aesthetic clinics and med spas from all over the world tell their stories and share the strategies and insights that allowed them to grow their business from often humble beginnings to soaring success. If you've ever tried to build a clinic, you'll know that it takes a lot more than just being a great doctor or practitioner, and it helps when you learn from the best in the industry. So join me, Miriam Shaviv, host and director of content at Brainstorm Digital, as we explore how aesthetic clinic owners just like you have developed the mindset, skills, and experience to transform their businesses, and how you can do the same. Let's jump in. Our guest today is a little different because she's not owner of an aesthetic clinic, but what she does can help every clinic serve their patients better. Michelle Garber is the Nip Tuck coach. She helps patients who are thinking about plastic surgery make the best possible decisions and navigate the entire process safely and effectively. Advocating for patients has given Michelle unique insight into the difficulties they have preparing for plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, often without their doctors ever noticing. She has enormous experience of the way top clinics operate for better and for worse. And she has plenty of advice on how clinics can improve their operations to communicate better with patients and help them get the most out of their procedures. Michelle is host of her own podcast, The Nip Tuck Talk Show, and has been featured widely on national and international media, including ABC News, ITV, Vice, Fox, Healthy Living, and many other outlets. Let's dive in. Michelle, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Fantastic. Um, so what you do is so unusual. Why don't you explain first, how did you get into um, what you do into being a patient advocate? Thank you, Miriam. Well, it's a little bit of a of a personal story and it's a little bit also of a um, professional story. So I've been in the beauty industry for about over 25 years and I was working behind the scenes in also public relations. I had my own PR firm and I was working with surgeons and I was doing the PR thing and um, understanding what it was like to, to do the PR for doctors and their, the doctor and patient relationship and how we spin some of, some of the information out there. 
And then I was also working behind the scenes in skincare. And so I had a lot of experience in the world of beauty, mostly with a lot of surgeons and dermatologists. And I was ready then to have my own work done. Now I had, I'd been doing Botox and fillers since the late nineties. And so I was quite familiar with doing lasers and Botox and fillers and working with the surgeons. I had a, I had a really good understanding of plastic surgery and the procedures. And um, though knowing all of this and actually having to research this for yourself is two different things. And I discovered that. So it was, okay, I'm, I'm ready to have a facelift. And my main concern, I was in my mid fifties and my main concern was my neck. My mother always had a, she had a bad neck. <laughs> she had a bad neck at a young age. And that was the area that I knew was bothering me the most. And it was really bothering me. And I knew there was nothing else I could do really other than going under the knife to fix the neck because all the Botox and fillers are not going to deal with the neck issue. What were the, what were the barriers that you encountered that later led to you to develop your business? Well, one of the, one of the barriers was lack of support. Um, I didn't tell my husband at the time because my husband was not a, was not a fan of doing any of this. And I knew that. And also the search of plastic surgeons, you know, I knew what I was looking for. And at the time I um, then ran into someone within the industry that I knew. And that person led me to a referral of a surgeon that she knew. And I based a lot of my decision-making on that surgeon based on, on her recommendation, which ended up being the wrong thing to do. And there were a lot of red flags upon meeting with my surgeon that I really didn't listen to because my mind was so focused at that time on getting my face done. And all I remember saying to the surgeon was, I don't care, it's just my neck. And I remember the surgeon saying to me, you're an easy case, you'll be beautiful, everything will be fine. And I trusted him. And, you know, that was a very broad statement. And well, what were the, if, I, if I can ask, what were the red flags that later you recognized? Well, one of the red flags that I did not know about at the time was that the person that referred me had financial entanglement in with the surgeon. So that was, that was, that I found out after the fact. The other red flag was that there was some information online that questioned the surgeon's integrity. And I found that out through research and I just said, okay, I understand what happened here. It's not a reflection of the surgeon's skill. And I let that pass. The other red flag was that this particular surgeon had a license in two states and the having surgery not in the state where his primary practice is, that's a complication unto itself because of, of many reasons where the staff isn't there and, and the follow-up care isn't there. So that happened, that happened afterwards. 
And my husband and, also. And that, and that is obviously the kind of thing that someone who has never had surgery before would not necessarily pick up on. Um, yeah, someone would not necessarily pick up on that. I mean, there are surgeons that are bicoastal and there are surgeons that have practices in um, the United States and other countries. Um, there's a way to do that. And, and, and that's a whole other conversation, but, but there's a right way in my mind uh, professionally where you can do that and be successful. And there's a way that there's a lot of gaps in, in having, uh, in, in practicing not in the state where your main practice is. And so, Michelle, uh, with, the, with the, so ultimately was this decision one that you came, I'm, I'm assuming it was one that you came to regret. The dis yes, the decision to have my surgery with this particular surgeon was a bad decision. And it was a bad decision because I had a lot of issues afterwards. I had very poor aftercare. I had a lot of bleeding. My, my neck basically fell within three months of the surgery. There was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of, there was some dishonesty, lack of transparency. And I had a terrible recovery. I did not have the support of my husband. He was very mad at me that I did this. And he didn't like the surgeon to begin with. He had a feeling, he had this instinct. And I didn't listen to my husband's instinct because this was my thing. This is what, what I wanted to do. And uh, so the experience that I had was not a good experience at all. And we, we went back and forth about having a revision and then my my ultimate decision was why would I have a revision with someone that did not do it right the first time and did not admit to not doing it right the first time. And it wasn't until a lot of back and forth that he finally admitted that, yeah, you know, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not the way it could have been. Um, I was given answers like, well, we did as tight as we possibly could. And um, though I did go for a second opinion at the time that um, I was, it was like three months, it was three months after the surgery. And I went to see a second opinion with a, a, a very a famous surgeon locally. And that surgeon basically said to me, between the lines, the surgeon did the best that he could do within his skill set, but that wasn't the best for you. And I left his office crying and I saw exactly what he was talking about because he took a picture and he did some drawing on the picture and I saw. Um, Michelle, but, but based, based on everything that happened to you, what then, what, what service did you then decide um, or do you now provide for other patients who want to have surgery? How did that translate in, into a service? Well, what service do you offer? Can you explain it a little bit? While I was going through the recovery process and I was having a really tough time, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there really is no one out there that is able to help someone who is going through a hard time or help within the decision-making. And I, it was, it was just like on a whim almost. Okay, there needs to be a patient advocate. There needs to be more education. There needs to be more support within the plastic surgery industry. And how can I serve? 
And how rare is what you do? Like, um, obviously, I'm on the marketing side, so I, I don't actually know. Is what you do still 10 years later really rare? Or are there more, or is there, or, or are there a lot of people basically who offer the service that you do? Interesting, interestingly enough, it is still um, not a very common niche. And there are several people that are doing what I do. And some of the people that do what I do get our, our double dipping, so to speak, which means that they are getting paid by the surgeons, possibly as marketing or PR. So you have to understand there's, it's illegal for surgeons to give any sort of financial kickback for referral fees. That is, that is no, no. Um, however, having said that, there's a way around that. And you, however you want to call it, whether it's marketing or PR, I mean, there is a way around that. And there, there are people out there that are servicing the surgeons at the same time that they're servicing clients. Um, I don't work that way. I never work that way. And I never will work that way. It's a little bit more difficult. So you offer basically completely um, independent advice for patients who are looking for a surgeon, but you, as far as I understand, you also accompany them throughout the whole process. Is that right? Well, what do you offer them during the process of surgery? Correct. I'm totally independent and I want to stay independent and I will always be independent. And, and the reason why is that I, I want to have the ability to get to know my clients, get to know my clients' needs, their aesthetic goals, and really spend time with them understanding who they are. Because it's not just picking a surgeon. It's who is this person and, and, and what is their personality and what are, what are they hoping to achieve and where are they at emotionally with the whole process? Is it first time? Is it a revision? You know, there's just a lot of elements that go into it. There's a lot of psychological components as well. So this gives me the opportunity to be able to match them, so to speak, with the right surgeon. Um, for instance, if a, if a client says to me, you know, I really want to look just refreshed and I don't want to really look like I've had any work done. Well, there may be a surgeon who is really great for that client. And that particular surgeon would have to have the same, be on the same aesthetic page as, as that client is. So that some surgeons are a little bit more aggressive with their facelifts, let's say, than others. So in this case, I would probably not match that surgeon with an aggressive I mean, match that client with an aggressive plastic surgeon because she ultimately would probably, she or he may not be happy with the results because it may be too much. So Michelle, let, let me ask you, the, the root of your service um, is that patients are confused about their, their best options. And I, I know that elsewhere you've talked about the, the education gap between doctors and patients. So what exactly is the confusion, right? What is that education gap? What, what is missing? Um, what, what should doctors, surgeons be saying that, that they're not and which causes the confusion for the patients? Well, I think some of the confusion lies with that there's so many 
different certifications. Well, not so many, but there's a plastic surgeon and there's a facial plastic surgeon. And then there's, there's doctors that are cosmetic surgeons. And I think that's confusing for the patient because first of all, the patient doesn't understand. Most patients don't understand the actual difference between a plastic surgeon and a facial plastic surgeon. So they may be just going online and they're seeking um, whether it's a facelift or maybe it's body work. And the training of the surgeon is also very important. The, their core specialty, what are the surgeon's core specialty? And a, a lot of consumers really, they look to Dr. Google and they look to you know, Dr. Instagram now. And they're basing their decisions on what they're seeing online, what they're hearing the doctors are saying, but they're really not looking deeper beyond that. And they don't know the right questions to ask sometimes. And I and think also the, the way that um, doctors present their credentials online actually probably isn't really particularly helpful because um, they, they present such a long list of credentials. It's really hard to tell what's important and what isn't. And if you're not, um, if, if you're not familiar with what those credentials are, they probably just meld into one long, you know, list that's really hard to, you know, to, to, to understand. Right. And it, yes. And also that the credentials are hidden. You know, when you, when a, a patient is looking for a surgeon, lots of times they're looking at Instagram. That's really where they're going. They're going to the online marketing and what they're seeing is their surgeons promoting themselves and they're seeing the before and afters. We don't know if those before and afters are, have been Photoshopped. We don't know if they're real. We don't even know if they're really the doctor's patients. I mean, there have been cases where photos have been stolen, where doctors have stolen other doctors' photos and had put them on as their patients. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are going on, you know, behind the scenes that consumers really are totally unaware of. I think consumers are more savvy now than they were a few years ago, for sure. But there, there is still lots of lack of transparency. And it's confusing. How do you choose the right surgeon for you? and are comfortable with the decision and are getting the right information. So I think there's the gap of the actual, how do you choose a plastic surgeon? And what are the differences in surgeon skill sets? And what does it mean to have a core specialty? And then how much information do you really understand about your surgery? And how prepared are you for your surgery? Um, and that's another part of the gap. You know, it's, it's interesting. I just spent two weeks with a patient in New York because I also do aftercare. And this patient was so prepared for her surgery. She, I mean, she was a client, but on top of being a client, she also did over the top preparation physically for her surgery, which involved extra supplements, hyperbaric treatment, IV therapy. She did a lot that the typical patient um, doesn't do and also it was, is expensive. So a lot of people can't afford it. And the surgeon came out after surgery and said to me, you know, I am so surprised how incredibly well she handled the surgery. 
that she should be way more swollen and way more bruised than she is. And I saw firsthand really how much it does serve the patient to do extra pre-post work and take the right supplements and really work on the nutritional aspect of themselves before surgery. But it then, almost sounds like the patients aren't taking the surgery. The typical patient doesn't take the surgery seriously enough, um, possibly through no fault of their own, but they just don't understand what they actually need to do to prepare before, during, and after, um, and how much it really takes. Is that, is that right? Yes, it's a, it, is a, it is a big gap. And after the surgery, every day, we were at the hyperbaric chamber, the surgeon, the the patient did treatments every day. And the surgeon who did her surgery was also very on top of the pre and post-op. So it wasn't only my counseling and, and, and my help with the process, but it was also that the surgeon in the practice really understood how to help their patients recover pre and post-op because not everyone has a patient advocate or has a plastic surgery coach by their side. So Michelle, um, why, why do you think that in so many cases they're not providing that guidance and support? Well, why, why, yeah. why, what is the root of that gap? Why, why, is, why does that gap exist really? That's an interesting question. And I think it's lack of knowledge. And I'll tell you, um, so I'm on Clubhouse and my handle on Clubhouse is, is Nip Tuck Coach. And I created a clubhouse called Nip Tuck Talk. And last Sunday, we had I a room. Follow, I just followed you, just so that you should know. Oh, thank you. And we had a room last Sunday. And in the room was several plastic surgeons and um, dermatologists. And we started talking about nutrition. And we started talking about pre and post-op. And what was really interesting was that there were a couple surgeons in there. One was from Dallas and the other from New York who got it. They have a protocol for their patients. They actually have a nutritional pre and post-op protocol for the patients to follow. Now, I don't know what the protocol is. We didn't get into the specifics, but they got it. They understood how important it is for a patient to be prepared for their surgery and how vital that is in the recovery process. And in the same room was another surgeon who um, is a local surgeon and she does none of that. And I could hear you know, questions that she was asking. She, didn't, she doesn't even request a blood workup. And it was really interesting because I could tell from what she was, it was like, I don't do any of that. But in her mind, I heard her thinking to herself, you know what? You could hear the cogs going around. This is something, this is something that I need to learn about. So I messaged her and, and I said to her, you know, anytime that you want to talk about this with me and putting together a pre and post-op protocol. And she said, yes, she was very interested. So so you see, there is that gap. And I think the gap is because most, most surgeons, they don't learn anything about nutrition. Some of the uh, younger surgeons perhaps have taken additional nutrition courses. 
and have learned more about it. Um, I know a couple of surgeons that are actually certified nutritionalists. And so that is, I was really excited to hear about the other, that some of the other surgeons were actually starting to implement this care because that's a huge gap. And time and time again, when I've taken care of patients that have not been my clients, they're not prepared. And they, a lot of them freak out. They have no clue about the surgery process and they have no clue, especially with facelifts of really what to expect. And they look at themselves and they, they get scared and they say, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do? So Michelle, so- there, 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 there's a few different levels here of, of things kind of going wrong. I think it sounds like one is a communication problem, right? So the doctors um, do not know how to, and surgeons don't know how to properly communicate their difference as well as communicating what to expect before during and after so the one one is a communication problem the other is an education problem which is probably a much larger thing but what essentially do you think needs to be done um, for some of these problems to be fixed first of all from the from the from the clinic side well i think honestly that to be fair the clinics the the practices are busy and especially now, I mean, there is a Zoom boom in plastic surgery and practices are busy. And I, and I think because they are busy, look, surgeons fit in their, their patients for consults, sometimes in between surgeries, after surgeries, you know, not all surgeons will spend an hour with their um, clients with their patients in a consultation. Some of them feel rushed, some patients feel rushed. And then you've got so many different people doing so many different things and so many patients in a busy office. And it's very easy to get lost and fall through the cracks as a patient. And so in in all fairness to practices, most practices, I don't know of any practice that has a dedicated nutritionalist or a dedicated coach or concierge services that are outside of the practice. And I think that it's important to look at the patient globally, not just, okay, this patient's coming in, this patient's going to have the facelift or whatever surgery they're going to have, we're going to schedule the patient for the pre-op. We're going to, you know, take the patient's money, make sure that they understand everything. And the next time we're going to see them is for their pre-op. And then they're going to have the surgery. And then we're going to see them a few times for their post-op. Um, I think that the, the patient is a whole person. The patient has, it's not just the physical aspects of having the surgery. It's also the the emotional aspects of the surgery and the the preparation of the surgery and the prep work in the patient's own physical being of the surgery. That's where the gap is. I mean, so really fact- ideally there would be someone in the practice um, who whose job it would really be to take even more intense care of the patient throughout the whole throughout the whole process. Or hire, or hire, have a have a concierge person like myself who's outside of the practice that you can send that patient to, you know, and make sure that the patient has a full blood workup. Make sure that the patient that you that you know what the patient's um, 
if the patient's lacking any supplements that are going to cause a problem with the healing or to not to not give a patient to to not have a patient have a full blood workup before surgery i don't understand that i mean i i really i look to functional medicine and functional medicine should be integrated into plastic surgery as well and that it who knows really what's going on inside of anyone's body unless you get that tested. And some of what going inside of the body can be affected during surgery and can be affected in the healing process. Why not have those have blood work? Why not find out if there's anything missing? Why not bump up on the supplementation and, and make sure that that patient is at optimal, optimal health before you cut them open. Michelle, because- I have to ask that, that, that um, the audience of this podcast isn't just surgeons, right? Also many, many owners of med spas, aesthetic clinics who don't um, offer surgery at all. Do you see similar kind of trends or needs um, or gaps um, there as well? Well, I think the major gap is is really in lack of transparency and in it and in education aside from all the physical um, pre, pre and post-op is that there's a lot of marketing lingo going on and 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 that's difficult for consumers to really decipher. You know, when when you start calling all these different procedures different names and you don't really understand what it is it's but yet you look at the internet and you and you look at you know tiktok and reels and whatever and you see some of the outcomes and then all all you want is that end result you're looking for that that golden nugget to of perfection because that's how society is is presenting all this to us and so it's so easy just to get sucked in it's so easy to say yes 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 because look what i can get and and that perfection is almost impossible because we're we're not perfect humans they they still don't really the patients there still don't really understand necessarily um, what they're actually buying and they're kind of almost seduced by the social media is that what you're saying yeah yeah it's very seductive and then you go for a, a plastic surgery consultation and then the surgeon start well not the surgeon but the practice has all these different names for all these different procedures and and these procedures are explained to you as well they're going to enhance this and they're going to enhance that it's yes, it's very, very seductive. And before you know it, you're you're walking out with, you know, $150,000 facelift. And and yet does the patient really understand everything that they're signing for? And are all these things really necessary to, to for the result that they're looking for? Because managing expectations is so important and so huge. And so the um, marketing terms can be very confusing. And it's, yeah, it's so, it's very easy to get sucked into 
doing something, not understanding what you're doing. I, I see it. Michelle, I, I really want to delve into this um, with you because obviously um, looking at it from the marketing side, um, this how to market ethically, um, responsibly, um, and, uh, and to be fair and of service to the patients, obviously of enormous interest to me. So let's take a quick break now. And when we get back, we're going to talk more about how to market um, in, in a way which is actually ethical and clear. So we'll be right back. Hey, it's Miriam here again. During this break, I have a quick question for you. Could you use some more Threadlift patients? How about some more body sculpting patients? If the answer to either of those questions is yes, then we have two campaigns you can implement right now to generate new inquiries and bookings. The Threadless campaign is based on one we've run extremely successfully for three aesthetic clinics in Honolulu, LA, and London. So it's tried and tested on two continents and we've been refining and optimizing it ever since. But don't take my word for it. We've got a case study explaining exactly how the Threadless campaign works to bring in new patients and the kind of results it's generated. I've put the link in the show notes just head down there right now to grab your copy. And if you'd like to discuss how it can work for your clinic, my email address is in that document as well. We're also running a case study group right now for clinics that want to attract more body sculpting and skin tightening patients. We'll be working with you very closely to generate immediate appointments, both from new leads and from your existing patient list, and to create a body sculpting sales funnel that can bring in more high value appointments long-term. To find out more about how it works, email me at miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk. That's miriam at brainstorm-digital.co.uk. And I'll send you the details right now. Now let's get back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. And we're here today with Michelle Garber, the Nip Top Coach, who works with patients to help them through the surgery process. Um, And just before we went to break, we started talking about a subject very dear to my heart, obviously, um, which is marketing, but specifically how to market, um, how to market ethically um, and responsibly to your patients. Um, So, Michelle, what what are the main things that you feel that um, that clinics and practices need to change in their marketing um, in order to, uh, to, to really help the, help the patients make reasonable choices? Well, I think one of the, one of the main things is I understand, you know, that P, uh, doctors, practices want to differentiate themselves. We all want to differentiate ourselves, right? In, right, in and the, the issue with having different names for different treatments, obviously very often that's something we actually encourage because you want to help, um, exactly as you say, you want to help clinics differentiate themselves. Right, you want to help the differentiation. But in so doing, the di- helping the differentiation, it gets very confusing for, for the patient because the patient, unless it's really explained to them, so let's just take a facelift, for instance, right? There's so many different marketing terms for a facelift. And a lot of surgeons are using all these different terms when, when you break it down. And I had a surgeon tell me <laughs> recently, yes, we're using a lot of marketing terms these days 
for what is basically a facelift. And so I think it's really important. Let's go back to the basics. Let's go back to facelifts and a deep plane facelift or a SMOS facelift. And, and let's go back to explaining to the patient, let's forget the marketing terms and let's go back to really the, the bottom line, what the patient can expect and what is this procedure? Because I also had another surgeon tell me that he said a lot of his colleagues they don't even understand the marketing terms that they're using. So I'm hearing this from surgeons as well. And this really resonates with me because actually in our aesthetic immersion uh, marketing system, part of it is about what we call intimacy, but that really means understanding the patient. Um, that's, one of the, that's one of the ways um, that you make your marketing really a lot more effective by talking about everything from the patient's point of view in a way that resonates with the patient and the patient understands. And really by definition, that means getting away from dirty tricks, lingo, jargon people don't understand. It's really, I think that when you really see things from the patient's point of view, which is to me much more effective marketing, um, by definition, you're explaining it to them in a way which they understand a lot better as well, as well as the fact that it resonates with them more. Yes, because I think that I, I agree with you. And I think that they have unrealistic expectations when you start naming and putting these marketing labels on, on some surgeries that are, you know, basic surgeries that in the patient's mind and I don't, you know, I'm gonna know because I'm not, I'm not all these people. But, but I would see how it's really easy to get caught up with. Well, I'm going to have surgery with this surgeon, and this surgeon is doing this um, procedure on me, and it has a TM trademark after the name. And wow, so this surgeon must be beyond incredible because they've trademarked their own procedure. So I'm getting like the best in the world with this new procedure that uh, I'm going to be so thrilled with. And that's where, that's where it's kind of smoke and mirrors because anyone can trademark anything that doesn't mean anything. And that doesn't mean anything. I mean, the surgeon's just using that as a marketing term. The surgeon hasn't invented a new way of doing a facelift. The surgeon may have tweaked his method and using his skill set to perfect the way he does a procedure. So he's taken that perfection and trademarked it, but that's all he's really done. He hasn't changed anything really in the scheme of things. Like there's no new miracle um, surgery that, that he's invented. And that can be misleading to the consumers because they don't realize that. You know, when the vampire facelift first came out, do you remember that? Yes, for sure. 
you know, and that was like, oh, wow, the vampire facelift. Oh, this is like the biggest, greatest thing, you know, and what, you know, platelet-rich plasma. And we later found out, yeah, it wasn't the greatest thing. And now they just call it PRP and they don't even, and they don't even use the vampire facelift so much anymore as, as the marketing term. And so I think that, yeah, fine, well, and good. You want to trademark your procedure and you want to call it whatever you want to call it as a surgeon. But when you meet with the patient, let's get down to the nitty gritty of really what it is. It is what it is. And forget the marketing term, you know, and, and that's what I, that's what I seek when I refer a surgeon. And I, and I saw it firsthand happen you know, this way where I went with a client to the practice, to the consults. And this is a surgeon who does do a little bit of marketing with his own little trademark. And he's a very well-known surgeon. But when we were actually at the meeting, now maybe because I was there and I kind of played the plastic surgery cop, he, there was no mention of any of this lingo. It was straight talk. It was straight talk, and I really respected that. And the surgeon actually admitted and said, yeah, there's a lot of marketing terms out there, but I'm going to straight talk, and I'm going to tell you exactly what I'm doing. And so what, I respected that. Okay, so uh, to achieve that kind of um, change industry-wide, what do you think, is that even possible um, is the has the the horse already bolted the stable on that one, or and it's really up the patients really to seek advocacy for themselves and to be their own ad, or possibly even to be their own advocates, um, or or is it just up to surgeons and clinic owners and doctors um, and uh, and clinicians to to act to ask them to act responsibly, or is there more that can be done? Well, I think you know on a in terms of setting standards for aesthetic medicine, there, there can be things that, that can be done on a more of a global perspective, more with the American Academy of, you know, of, of, of plastic surgery and all, the, and all the plastic surgery organizations on, on that level where there's some standards brought in that says, you know, yes, you can trademark, no, you can't trademark, but if you trademark, you've got to disclose X, Y, and Z. And, and from the top down, from the medical organizations and the medical boards, yeah, that there could be some standards that there aren't right now in advertising. There's no standards at all. Um, that's, that's one route to take. The other route is for the practices to be really cognizant of that and to be a little more transparent and a little more forthcoming when they are ha- when they are having consults and to cut through all that crap so simply know. to appreciate first of all that the patients who are coming to them so enthusiastically may actually be quite confused just to be honest just to say yeah you know what yeah there's a lot of marketing terms out there and i'm using this terminology in my marketing but let me tell you what i'm really doing let me tell you what you're really going to get and straight talk it, straight, straight talk it. And then at least the patient leaves there and says, oh, okay, I really respect that. You know, I came in thinking one thing and I'm leaving thinking another. And 
I've, I've heard it the straight way. And now I know what I'm getting myself into. Now I know what the procedure really is. And it's not this, and I don't want to, I don't want to call anyone out here. So I'm, so I'm not going to, you know, use any marketing terms um, and that can be attached to any of the surgeons. I think that the surgeons are aware of their own marketing and there's some old school surgeons out there that they're not on Instagram. They don't, they, some don't even have websites and they don't care about all of this and they're very straightforward and they are, they will tell the patient like it is. And I think that we need to go back to the basics. Surgeons need to go back to the basics, not confuse, stop with the smoke and mirrors and the confusion and just be forthcoming with their patients. And if it costs $150,000 for a facelift, okay, that's what you're charging. What is the patient getting in in real terms for that $150,000. Not made up terminology and using all these things to add benefits. You know, there's, because some of it's not been really peer reviewed yet. And some of it, some of the stuff, some of the extra things that, that surgeons are doing may help, may not help in the long run. Um, but, it's it's a little it's like the wild west and it hasn't it's getting it i thought it would get better but now with everyone scrambling to want surgery i mean it's actually it's it's very hectic right now clinics and practices are extremely busy and i have heard surgeons saying that they're seeing the highest demand in aesthetic procedures that they have ever seen now post-COVID, you mean? Right, yes. Well, yes. Not post-COVID, but a year into COVID. Yes, because you know, a lot of people are using their stimulus checks that, that they've gotten from the government. So people aren't traveling, right? People aren't, weren't able to do the things they were able to do before COVID. They got stimulus checks from the government. And um, I think a lot of people are using those stimulus checks on themselves. So, and, and I think the last time we spoke, you said something very interesting to me, which is that um, lots of surgeons kind of think that people are sitting at home now, so they have a lot of time on their hands. That's why they're getting procedures, which is undoubtedly true. But you kind of presented to me the flip side of that, which is that actually a lot of people are worried they're going to go back to the office quite soon. So they actually feel under pressure to get the procedures um, that, they, that they want to get while they're still at home. So yep. in a way they may be acting, this is what you said to me, I'm just feeding back what you said, um, that in a way they may be acting under more pressure, possibly with less clarity and more rashly in some ways than ever before, because there's, they feel there's a time limit on we need to do this now, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so easy to do it now. I mean, yes. And I see that with, with people that come to me. I mean, I've been very busy too. And I think that people have that mindset. Well, now's a really good time because I don't know when I'm going back to work. And this has been, this is what, what I've been thinking about doing for a long time. And the fact that Zoom has really created this, um, this little bit of a monster, so to speak. You know, we will, we're looking at ourselves so much on Zoom, right? And even younger 
people that never even considered doing any sort of Botox or fillers or rhinoplasty or, or jaw contouring, they're looking at themselves and they're like, wow, you know, I know that I can look a little better if I did this or I did that. And they're excited about taking care of themselves. And I think there's, there's less of a feeling of guilty you know, oh, well, I haven't taken a vacation. Oh, I haven't been to the hairdresser. I'm, I'm not coloring my hair as much. I'm not doing my nails as much. I've got some extra money. I want to feel good about myself. And then it's also when, when we do go back to work, the competitiveness within the work environment and staying youthful. So I think all of this has, has an effect on what's going on with, um, with consumers right now. And I think the disposable income is there, even though we went through COVID. There's a lot of people have more money now than they did prior to COVID because of the extra money that we've gotten from the government and the lack of other things that we were able to do with our money. And so, so in, in many, in many cases, then um, basically what you're saying is that uh, the, the COVID environment has exacerbated a lot of these problems rather than actually help them. Um, it, I don't think it's a problem. I I don't see it as a as a problem. I I see it as well. No, no, no. Obviously, getting surgery is not a problem. I meant the problem of uh, of of um, you know. I guess every surgeon right now wants to take advantage of what is essentially a boom, right? So that yes, exacerbates the, the 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 issues with the marketing and the pressure people feel under, um, etc. Well, it's competitive. I think what's happened is plastic surgery is a business. And it's become an extremely competitive business. So how do you stay on top of that? And what do you need to do to promote your practice? What do you need to do to stay viable? What do you need? You know, and it's all about, it's all about marketing. Yes, it is. It's all about, it's all about marketing and positioning yourself and niching yourself. And so, I mean, a lot of, a lot of surgeons, I mean, there were surgeons out there that, that don't care. I mean, they've, They've been around for a long time. They're well-established and they have patients coming from all over the world and they've never really had to deal with, with, with competition from, from their colleagues as much as now. And I think even some of those surgeons that have never had to deal with this before may be rethinking their marketing because of all the competitiveness and because... As in, they're thinking it, it's as in they're getting more aggressive, essentially. Yeah, I think, well, what do I have to do now to stay alive? What do I have to do now to, to, to build more clients, you know, um, because they do see what's happening out there. You know, everyone, there's a, there's a lot of surgeons and there's a lot of consumers for the surgeons. And um, there's certainly enough consumers for all the surgeons out there. But... It's like any other marketing. How are you going to niche yourself? I mean, I'm in a situation where there aren't a lot of people that do what I do, but my, my biggest competition is just the internet, is just Instagram. You know, My biggest competition is I don't need you. I, I can just make my own decisions by doing my own research, by going online. Um, that's, that's my competition, really. And surgeons, there's a lot of competition. And, and I understand perfectly, they have to market. They have to market in order to stay alive because if they don't market, 
they're just going to fall through the cracks unless they've been around for 30 or 40 years and and right. how the, the, the challenges as we said before how it to, is like, challenging how, how, yeah, how to do it both effectively so it actually works but to be able to do it ethically yeah like ethically and effectively i mean what do you do when you're a young surgeon and you've just come out of school a few years and you and you're you're building your reputation you see, you I think do? that you can actually, uh, I think there's so many, um, you know, so, so much of the marketing is actually, I wouldn't say it's unethical necessarily, but so much of it um, is really about, has slightly become about, um, you know, big cars, big boats, as you said, um, before and afters that aren't necessarily um, true. Um, and I think that you can actually stand out simply by being the trusted voice, um, the person who, who does tell it like it is, um, who is deeply, deeply authentic, really. And actually in this environment, that, that, that there's, a, there's an ethical reason to behave that way. But I actually think there's a marketing reason to behave that way as well. And also really caring about your patients, caring beyond just the surgery. And that is just so important. And and again, I think that's true at at any time, um, but especially again um, in this COVID environment, I think people want to be taken care of. um, And so I think that there's a certain type of patient that 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 really appeals to. And that's a good thing. You know, it's, it's just nice. There's one surgeon that I know who actually sends his patients flowers and that's just a really nice touch. I don't know any other surgeons that do that. So you know what, this is is perfect. I really want to end on a positive note. We've talked a lot about the problems in the industry, but but you have, you've had exposure to a whole load of different um, surgeons over the years. So you've seen plenty of examples of good practice, possibly some slightly less good practice. But what I want to hear from you and what I really want to um, end up with um, is any, have you seen any examples of really unusually good customer service or unusually um, positive attention to patients that other um, other practices can learn from? Like a clinic that really impressed you with, with how they went above and beyond. Well, I think the flowers is a nice touch. I mean, it's just, it really makes the patient feel, feel good. You know, anytime a, a surgeon gives the patient um, something after surgery, I think is really nice. Um, there's a, there's an, another practice that I've worked on aftercare and it's actually a transgender package. And after the, after the patient has gone through the surgery, the surgeon, um, is the, the patient gets this nice goodie bag, which includes a bathrobe and some other goodies. And it's just how lovely. A nice thank you. Thank you. That, thank you. You put your in me and here's something back. You know, it's very expensive to have surgery. Um, and the robes were beautiful. I mean, they were, and they were beautiful robes. You know, I think those little, those little touches means goes a long way. I mean, I send flowers to all my clients after while they have surgery, you know, after their surgery too, because it's just a nice, it's just a nice touch to to do that. Um, and I think the other the other uh, valuable parts of the uh, it's the post-op care. It's seeing it's seeing your patients 
frequently during the recovery process. I think that's really important. You know, some doctors don't see their patients that frequently, don't even see their patients after they have their stitches removed because they don't remove the stitches, they have their nurse remove them, and the patient never sees the surgeon, the patient doesn't see the surgeon for a month later. I think it's really important for the patient to see the surgeon as often as possible. And when, when a patient goes in for the stitches to be removed, you know, it's really nice when the surgeon pops their head in and looks at the patient and examines the patient stitches and just validates what the patient, you know, the patient has a lot of questions, regardless of whether or not the, the post-op went perfect. Patient always has questions. Is this normal? Is that normal? What about this? What about that? And it's the surgeon that can answer those questions with like, not, okay, this is normal or not, this is okay, but explaining to the patient the process, or if there's something additional that the patient needs to assist in the healing process, that the surgeon goes to that next level of step. And rather than saying, um, well, your swelling will go down, you know, naturally, or let's give you X, Y, and Z, let's give you some more prednisone, or let's give you a diuretic, or do we have to do this, or do we have to do that to help speed along the process? I mean, everyone has their different protocol, but, it's, I have heard many times from clients, not surgeons that, that necessarily that I refer to, but they feel, they just feel left out at the end. They feel like the surgeon has taken their money and they don't have a good experience with follow-up. And so much can be done. Seeing them, it, it's really about being patient-centric, but that doesn't end with the surgery. It's about it doesn't end. It's all about it's all about best practices. It's all about patient-centric, and knowing that you know, I had a surgeon a, a long time ago when I first started this. I, I interviewed a surgeon for my podcast, and the surgeon said, "You know, my patients are my patients for life." And I love that. That is so true. Your patient is your patient for life. And anytime that patient needs to see you, that's a commitment you've made. <laughs> you've got that Michelle, patient open. You, know? Michelle, you, you obviously work um, with the patients, but do you ever work with the clinics as well to help them improve all these things? I have, um, so I lecture at medical meetings. I haven't done that in a while, but I have lectured at medical meetings many times on these subjects and trying to work with the surgeons. And a lot of the surgeons never understood what I was doing when I first started doing it. It was a little bit of threatening. And um, I'm always open to working with practices and improving their services and integrating concierge services. And I've discussed this with surgeons before and it's just something that they're used to thinking about. I think, and I could be wrong, but I'm hopeful that things are changing in that regard. I'm hopeful that the practices are looking more at the patient globally. I was encouraged by the talk and what I heard in Clubhouse this past weekend. Um, and, and I'd like to see 
protocols and being being implemented in lots of practices. So Michelle, just remind everyone, um, if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, tell us again, first of all, your clubhouse handle and then um, your website and any other places where people can learn more about what you do and get in touch with you. Thank you. Clubhouse is Nip Tuck Coach. Instagram is Nip Tuck Coach. My handle on social media is Nip Tuck Coach. My email is hello at niptuckcoach.com. Uh, that, that makes it all pretty easy to remember. <laughs> right, right. Hello at niptuckcoach.com. And um, I do have a website. It's also niptuckcoach.com. Fantastic. So basically, everything is Nip Tuck Coach. I do have a podcast that is, it is at called niptucktalk.com. It's not active, meaning that I'm not actively interviewing, but I've got a lot of incredible interviews with surgeons and dermatologists and all the thought leaders of aesthetic medicine that I've done over the years. And one of these days we're going to go live again. So for surgeons out there or practices out there, you can hear what your colleagues have to say by going to niptucktalk.com. And it's also on Apple Podcast as well. And I have a blog. My blog is called Beauty News Talk. And that website is actually B-E-A-U-T-I-R-X.com. So it's like beauty with an I-R-X.com is, is my blog. And I've got some other exciting things coming up too. <laughs> Online classes for consumers. We're doing a whole, I'm going to be doing a whole series of boot camps for consumers. I did some a couple months ago and I'm and working towards doing some new ones. Yeah. Fantastic. So we'll put all those links at the bottom um, in the show notes. So anyone who's listening um, who wants to find out more about what Michelle does and explore some of those resources, just hop down below um, below the podcast. You'll find all those links right there. Uh, Michelle, thank you very much for being our guest today on um, How I Scaled My Aesthetic Practice. You're one of our rare interviewees who is not actually the owner of a clinic, um, but it's been such a valuable um, and thought-provoking um discussion and i'm absolutely certain that everyone will get a ton out of this so thank you so much for being our guest today thank you so much miriam and i just want to say one more thing for any practices that want to reach out to me and discuss some of the things that i spoke about i am more than happy to talk to them fantastic thank you very much again um, and for everyone thank else I'm, i am miriam shaviv director of brainstorm digital and i will see you on the next episode of how i scaled my aesthetic clinic